I didn't intend to preach on this, and I'm not going to for very long, but um, uh, the psalm for today, from Psalm 139, there's a verse, verse 12, you, for you yourself created my inmost parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. My colleague and friend, Margaret Irwin, who was the rector of All Saints Church in Palo Alto for a number of years, and she retired, maybe it's 10 years ago now, and uh, she was in my colleague group, and when we met one time, she told us about the, the fact that her, one of her daughters had just become pregnant or had been pregnant for a while, and that she had gone with her for a visit to the uh, doctor. And while they were there, she had an ultrasound or whatever the right procedure is to have a little peek at the baby. And she looked at the ultrasound of the baby, how the baby's head was, you know, coming together like this. And she said, I thought of Psalm 139, you have knit me together in my mother's womb. And I always thought it was an interesting use and maybe not an inappropriate one of the biblical text because uh, they were prescient, it sounds like, to me. There are three things I want to preach about. I want to preach about all the readings from Jeremiah, from Philemon, which we hear from only once every three years, uh, which, and in the new Revised Common Lectionary, we hear, we didn't before uh, to speak of it all unless you read a morning and evening prayer every day. And then from Luke's Gospel, where uh, Jesus, as he is his wont, is sounding a little hyperbolic uh, about discipleship and what's involved in it. And uh, he has uh, a line which appears in the other of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark and Matthew, that unless you hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sisters, even your life itself, you cannot be my disciple. So what does that mean? And how do we understand it? And how do we understand Christian discipleship in the light of this apparently extreme teaching about what it takes? What does it mean to persevere? So the three, the three topics are, is the relation between God and the creation uh, that God made and called good reciprocal. In other words, Jeremiah is speaking today about the sovereignty of God. What do we mean when we speak of God's sovereignty? And how do we understand it, you know? And Philemon is saying something about what is the relationship between the values of the gospel and behavior found in the wider cultural culture and society. How do we understand what that means? Because this is a, a, a short letter about slavery. What do we think about that? And then finally... Um, how far are we willing to go with regard to Christian discipleship? What does it mean? Jeremiah it has the, the, the longest book in the Old Testament. That's why he is one of the major prophets. Remember, major prophets have a big book and minor prophets have a little book. So that means that the major prophets aren't actually more important than the minor prophets in terms of what they say. They just take a long time to explain all of these things. So Jeremiah is talking today in terms of God being a potter. 
he has gone into the potter's shed and he's watching the potter make a, a pot and the potter has made the pot badly and now has to reshape the pot. And he's using it as a metaphor to describe God and God's way with the world and God's way with God's people, in his, in his case, particularly Israel, because what Jeremiah is talking about uh, in terms of the situation on the ground is uh, the upcoming, although nobody knows, Babylonian captivity and the reasons and the causes for why the people will be taken away in captivity in Babylon because they're not paying attention and being faithful to their side of the covenant with God. I watched a YouTube, I'm doing a lot of this now as you know, I watched a YouTube video this week with a, with a very well-known in evangelical circles uh, guy named John Piper who is a Calvinist Baptist, and he was the pastor up until recently of a huge or a large church in, in uh, Minneapolis called Bethlehem Church or something like this. And uh, in, the ba- in Baptist circles these days, Calvinism is once again in the ascendant, and people are finding it a very congenial <coughs> theological outlook uh, Episcopalians have had their brush with Calvinism, and Calvinism is still part of our common life and part of our personal, our, our tradition. Um, and one wag in the 18th or in the 17th century said, uh, "The Church of England has an Arminian clergy, a Popish liturgy, and a Calvinist theology." <laughs> so somebody he has this organization called Desiring God, and he's, you know, call in and ask John Piper. So how do we make sense of reading in the Old Testament and in other places in the Bible uh, about God coming and smiting the land, killing men, women, and children, causing floods, causing reorientation of rivers, all of this kind of thing? How do we make sense of that? And he said... Is that right? He said, God can do whatever he wants to do. He can kill as many people as he wants to. He can cause all kinds of pestilential circumstances. He can punish those who are not faithful. He's God. He's absolutely sovereign. Now, we're reading a text today from Jeremiah which would uh, allege that God is sovereign reworking the pot, but also in this, it's in the negative actually, but he said, you know what? In the midst of all these circumstances, I can change my mind. So this great unmoved mover, this great sovereign entity, being, can change. On Ash Wednesday, we read from the book of the prophet Joel, who speaks about the need for repentance and says in in his, he's a minor prophet, (laughs) a short book, he says, God changed his mind. He didn't punish. 
Now, for my money, I would prefer to focus on God's changeability because here's the great mystery that is often left out with the absolute sovereignty people, and that is, why are we here? Are we here mainly just to please God, and if we don't, we get trouble and plenty of it? Or are we here for the purposes of fulfilling God's plan for the cosmos? Does God need us? And is the operative principle involved in this God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness? So don't we understand God's omniscience in some way as tinctured by those things? Because at its best, if we have ever felt God's presence, most of the time, I would suggest for us, it's been affirmative. Right? When I was in seminary a long time ago now, there was a sociological study produced by two famous sociologists, I only know their last names, Glauck and Stark. And it was called American Piety. And in this book, they said 85% of all the people in the study that we made in this country, the United States, have claimed to have an experience of a powerful experience of the presence of God at least once in their lives. And none of them spoke about it as being a negative experience. Now, that's different from saying, I've had this experience that was affirmative, but it also told me now I had to change the direction in which I was looking for happiness. That's what repentance is. To turn around and look at things in a new way. So Jeremiah is saying, you know, you're going to need to do some of this soul-searching people of Israel because there's some things on the horizon that might be difficult. We don't always listen. But he's also saying that God can change his mind. So that's where I'm putting my money in terms of God's sovereignty. God can change his mind. And if we change, then everything changes. Philemon is a letter that was written by Paul to a, a, a Christian that had become a great uh, advancer of the gospel. His name was Philemon. And he had a slave named Onesimus who had run away. And he came to be with Paul and part of Paul's uh, missionary work and efforts. And Paul is writing this letter to Philemon. You might wonder, well, how in the world is it? Why is this in the New Testament? There is a tradition, I don't know how reliable, that, that says that Onesimus ultimately became the bishop of Ephesus. And that... Ephesus was one of the locations for the beginning of the putting together of what we now call the canon of the New Testament. In other words, which books we call sacred, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that sort of thing. What the canon is. And since that was a center for the beginning of doing that, uh, Onesimus was 
glad that uh, Philemon got included. Remember Aristotle was right? Wherever there are two or three gathered together, there is always politics. <laughs> That's not a bad thing either. So Philemon, uh, Paul says to Philemon, I have Onesimus here with me. He has become my right hand in so many words. And I'm going to send him back to you. And I'm going to spend a little of my capital. And I'm going to ask you to take him back as an equal as a fellow in, in, in the spread of the gospel of Christ. I'm not going to ask you to, uh, to I mean, or please don't accept him now and say he's a, a slave once again. So here's the other sort of ambiguous piece to this. Uh, slavery in the New Testament was assumed Jesus Christ is silent on the subject of slavery. That's why what I said earlier about Jeremiah, the idea of cooperating with the divine initiative means that you and I have the capability of understanding we need to move in a direction with regard to institutions that are not good and that we see something at work that William Wilberforce, one of the great Anglicans, said, the processes of God working on the manners, morals, and customs of people to begin to say it doesn't matter whether Jesus was silent on this subject or not. We know that slavery is a moral evil, even though it has been assumed. A lot of people criticize this epistle because uh, Paul doesn't say slavery's bad and you can't, you know, I'm just asking you this big favor to take him back as an equal. Even so... In the Deep South, before the Civil War, if a preacher preached on this epistle, he could be imprisoned. Because there was the suggestion that Onesimus be taken back as an equal. Think about it if you were a slave owner in 1856... And you're, some preacher tells you that you've got to either let your runaway slaves go or take them back as free people. $1,500 a piece? In 1856? I think this is in here because it gives us some idea of the processes of God. Imperfect as it may be, moving in a direction that is more godly and by extension being um, inspiration for human beings to do the same thing in every age and in every time. So Luke. Luke is, has Jesus today speaking about what does it cost to be a disciple? And he says... You must hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister. Let me see. I, I reproduce this here. Um, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. I've talked about this before. Have you ever 
decided that you were going to make some big change in your life or you were going to take a certain direction in your life or you were going to have uh, do a certain thing about your vocation. Maybe you were going to marry somebody that was not like your gang or something and you told your family and there was pushback. You know what this means. And the way it's said in other parts of the, of the, in other Gospels. You know what that means. In this sense, people, I used to always do it too since I was, when I was a kid, hate. Most of us in our own time use the word hate with, I hate you. Right? It's a very strong emotion. Well, in, in, in the thought world of, of Jesus' day, hate means separate. In text, it means creating distance. And so that often means that if you want to be true to yourself, or you do uh, what you believe is right, sometimes it's listening to the still small voice that you know is not your own. And saying, I'm going to take a certain direction in my life. And I'm going to need to develop the internal self-regulation and stamina in order to be able to withstand the resistance. And to do what my conscience tells me. You know what this means about the necessity to create some distance. So when Jesus uses the term hate in this list of things and at the end says, and even life itself. It doesn't mean that you need to engage in some kind of I'm lying across the door threshold and everybody step on me on the way in. Or I'm going to engage in some kind of self-loathing. Or uh, uh, undertake hair-raising austerities in my life in order to feel like I'm doing this. It means you need to cultivate the right kind of distance. And work on yourself. And say, how do I remain strong and also true to my convictions in the midst of the anxiety and reactivity of other people? I've said this, many, this quote many times about eight years ago, the Dalai Lama was in San Francisco and he was being interviewed and the, in, the person interviewing him said, what do you need to develop some sort of spiritual strength and power, some sort of sense of enlightenment about yourself? And the Dalai Lama said, it's very important to be a good person. It's very important to be a good person. Sounds simple, doesn't it? So maybe being a good person is something that requires the ability to create a sense of distance, not the cutoff. You know, there have been studies uh, with people in the relationship with their families, at least their living relatives, that if, you're, if you have some sort of physical or emotional affliction that you're working through, People who cut themselves off from their families have a harder time healing 
So it's important to determine what kind of connection is safe for you to make and keep. Because it will help you moving forward. So when you read this passage where Jesus speaks in this strong sense, also at the end he said you have to give up all your possessions. <laughs> Do you think there's anybody here that tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock is going to give their stuff away? Please. <laughs> but then again, one of the things of me being Mr. Scholar Owenso, one of the important things about reading it in the original is that what Jesus is talking about is the creation of right relationship with your stuff. So one of the things that's involved with that is learning how to be generous. And all of us have to learn. Father Schlegel used to say this. One of the things we have to learn is how do we move from the kind of generosity and self-sacrifice that we're willing to make with our own kinship group, our family and our wider family, which is our first responsibility. How do we learn to move from doing that and using the same kind of generosity and open-handedness with other people. Right? Beyond that. That's what Jesus was teaching in his earthly ministry. How to do it. How to have a right relationship with your things. And uh, be willing to entertain the possibility that some of it may require sacrifice. Because all of us are willing to do this about the things that really count for us. We're willing to make hair, engage in hair-raising austerities in order for that to be so. And so Jesus says that, that part of Christian discipleship is learning how much are you, are you in, are you all in, a little bit in. And don't feel guilty if you're not all in. You have to allow the processes of God to go to work. So this week, uh, give thanks. Uh, for the fact that God needs you to fulfill his plan for the cosmos. Give thanks for being unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven. And work on creating the right kind of distance between all of the attachments that you have. Amen. <laughs>